audio. Welcome to Doc Talk, a weekly podcast featuring Monument Health physicians addressing medical topics. Tune into your health with Monument Health. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Doc Talk. My name is Mark Houston, and joining me today is Dr. Nicholas Hobson, who is a urologic surgeon at Monument Health. Now, before I get started, I want to try this. I want to I want to test something out on you to see how close I get to this. Okay, Willkommen til Shula. Did any of that make sense to you? Welcome to Shula, Sh- the show. Oh, was yeah. I close? <laughs> You speak Danish and and Spanish. Yeah, that sounded more German. Oh, great! Me, See, <laughs> oh, that's no, that's I, I knew I'd screw it up anyway. But uh, I thought I would at least give it the attempt. I, yeah, I was impressed. So, where, uh, why, what, what, with those two languages specifically, what, what drew you to those? Well, Spanish I took in high school, and, okay. then, and then I ended up marrying a, a woman from Guatemala. Oh, okay. So I, we visit Guatemala frequently, her family visits. I've done a lot of um, time in the hospital, you know, volunteer work down there. Um, yeah. So I've really developed my Spanish, and I did my residency in San Antonio, so I used it a lot there. Of course. And then I served an LDS mission, church mission. Oh, sure. In Denmark. How long were you there? Two years. Okay. And so part of that is uh, language training. So that is, it seems to be uh, a ridiculously hard language to learn. Is it? I mean, you know, most people know Spanish around here. Yeah, it seems yeah. to be it's our second language really anymore in the United States. But well, because I was so immersed in it for two straight years, you know, I was I would say it's been easier to learn Danish than Spanish. Really? But the the accent in Danish is what <laughs> throws a lot of people off because it yeah. you have to speak in your throat kind of. And well, and, and looking at the word S H O W, I think L T or L E T E T, yeah, and then you say it as an L sound at the end almost. Uh, it's it, show it. <laughs> Actually, oh, God, that God, all right. <laughs> Well, then I'm, I'm mad at Google is what I'm mad at <laughs> yeah. to teach that to me. Uh, well, you, uh, like we said, uh, you're a uh, urologic surgeon uh, from Washington State, yes, correct? So originally, yeah. You've only been here since you said last September. Yeah. So what, what brought you to the area here, doctor? Well, I, uh, I wanted to get out. I got out of the Army uh, a year ago, and all my family settled in the Mountain West. Okay. And I, that's where I went to school in Utah and uh, from undergraduate and so I just looked in the region and looked at jobs and this one came up and I never heard of the Black Hills I you know knew of Mount Rushmore but knew very little of South Dakota and when I saw the description of the area with the mountains and skiing and hiking and all year-round activities and no more heat and humidity (laughs) um, it really piqued my interest and then I met with the group and um, you know the hospital the the urology group that was already here just I just was really impressed by everything that Monument and the urology group had to offer, and and it just fit really well. Do you have a, do you have like a medical background in your family? Do you have other family? No, that kind I, of, I mean really? there's some nurses and, sure. and, and whatnot, but I was kind of the first physician. So what drew you into this profession specifically, doctor? Um, when I was a kid, I had allergies really bad, actually, and then so I spent a lot of time in the doctor's office getting allergy shots and. And whatnot, they're trying to figure out for a long time what was wrong with me. <laughs> <laughs> so um, then I got allergy shots for five years. You go in once a week or once a month, mm. and I just really liked the environment. I loved the you know, the caring nurses and yeah. the, just 
I was always I found it really pleasant and uh, and then they helped me and so I got better and so that's kind of is kind of what got me down the road of being interested in medicine. Excellent. Uh, well, what we want to talk about here, since uh, you are a, a urologic surgeon, um, uh, especially for 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 men, um, I think it's kind of this really has become seemingly a hot topic over the years, uh, and maybe we can get into it a little bit later here in the podcast. But it seems like uh, this is something that it's happening to men younger and younger now, and that's why I think we want to talk about the importance of prostate cancer screening on this podcast. Are you finding that to be true? It seems like I've read a lot of, I don't know if they're clickbaity kind of headlines about this, that seems like uh, this is happening younger to, to guys. Yeah, I mean, I think as people are becoming more and more aware of it, we're, we're testing earlier in most cases, so I think we're catching it earlier in a lot of men, um, and also awareness is growing about it. So I don't know that it's necessarily... Um, we're seeing it in younger and younger men. Okay. It's just, I think the, the awareness is out there more, so more people are coming in to be tested. And uh, I think our guidelines are getting better and better. They just updated them recently with recommendations for when to screen and whatnot. Um, so, you know, if somebody in your family, like your father or, or brothers, had has had prostate cancer, then we're recommending we screen younger as early as age 40. Because it always used to kind of be in that 50-year-old range, yeah. correct? And it still is uh, 50 sure. to 55 if you're of average risk. Um, but if you're in increased risk of because of family members or even race, um, then we uh, tend to screen um, down into the 40s. Okay. So that's, but um, so when we, the more we screen, the more yeah. we find. Right, and the screening is something I think that's kind of interesting with this now too, because of course everybody knows, all guys know, when you are screened for prostate cancer, what the process is. Yeah. I don't. Is that happening as much anymore though, or are other forms of testing coming along to where that's not as necessary? Yeah. So. Um, We've had the PSA blood test yeah. for a long time, as well as the, you know, everyone loves the rectal exams. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, that's always kind of been a staple of it and uh, for it. And um, about 10 years ago, there was a U.S. task force that came out with a, a uh, physicians from different specialties, and they looked at uh, the literature, and they felt that maybe screening wasn't necessary or we shouldn't push it as much. But uh, with that, we kind of saw a rise in um, people being diagnosed with prostate cancer at more aggressive levels or more advanced degrees. And um, and so I think we've kind of come to more of a happy medium there because the, the earlier consensus with that task force was that we were over-treating and not really seeing a, a benefit mm -hmm. in the numbers of people who are surviving from prostate cancer. So um, now... There's a really big push, especially in the urologic community, to um, counsel with the patients, like make it a shared decision whether or not a patient wants to be screened for prostate cancer rather than just making it an automatic right. screening mechanism. And But um, PSA is still, the PSA blood test is still the, you know, the go-to in okay. most settings. We haven't really, we've had other uh, blood markers that we've, found that could be beneficial, but they haven't become widespread. Got the PSA it. test is really inexpensive, and it's available everywhere. Yeah, and it so, seems like you can almost get that when you just go in for your yearly check. Yeah, it's something they can check. And that's something, actually, the, the guidelines changed that used to be 
uh, they recommended getting your PSA checked every two years if you're at average risk. And now I just saw that it's been changed to every two to four years. Okay. So, but because most men get their labs checked right um, once a year, that just kind of gets thrown on there. I got it. Uh, yeah. Okay. Let's um, let's talk a little bit about the prostate itself, and uh, its function, and and why there's seems to be problems with it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So what in? I mean, what you know? What what is your prostate, and what is what is the purpose? Yeah, so I think it's uh, something that most people know exists, but, you know, some people think maybe men and women have it, Mm -hmm. and most people don't really know what it does, um, just that it causes problems for men. It's actually a pretty important little gland. It's a a gland because it secretes fluid, so it's a sexual gland. It's part of, but it's also part of the urinary tract right. because when men ejaculate, it comes out the urethra just like urine does, and so it's um, the it's tucked up right underneath the bladder, and um, it kind of shaped like um, I like to describe it like a donut because it hugs the urethra that way and up against the bladder, and um, so when a man ejaculates, it secretes the seminal fluid into the urethra. Um, along with the seminal vesicles, which are also right in that same area, and the the sperm that come from the vas deferens, so they all kind of coalesce right there, right uh, at the base, right underneath the bladder, kind of, into the urethra, and so uh, the prostate um, produces some of the seminal fluid, and also. On the outside of the prostate uh, is very important for sexual function because that's where the the main nerves are that control your erections oh. and your sexual function. Right. So um, that's why um, one of the one of the concerns with treatment of the prostate for different conditions can lead to erectile dysfunction. So uh, when it comes to the, the the cancer, I mean, what everybody you know really understands about the prostate is the the cancer that can be a part of it. Why is it an organ that's so affected by cancer? It seems to be one that is common. Is it a common cancer, really? Then yeah, it's um, the either the first or second most commonly diagnosed okay. uh, cancer in men, um, and um, you know, first or second um, in number of deaths that it causes. And so uh, I I don't know if I have a good answer for why cancer occurs there so so much versus other places like, um, you know, the seminal vesicles, which are also part of that little system. We don't really see cancer developing in those structures. It's just really in the prostate. But um, it it is a very commonly uh, common form of cancer. And, um, And so... That's why it's easy to screen for. Um, but one thing that maybe I can uh, say to why it's so why it happens there so so commonly is um, the prostate continues to grow as men age, um, and it's uh, part of the reason that it grows is the way the testosterone in our in men's body affects the prostate. It's it, it needs prost- uh, testosterone to function to performance function, and that testosterone also causes it to grow as men age, which leads to um, problems with urination. Right. Which we can talk about another time. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> well, I know I know one of the other topics that we do want to discuss is this uh, benign prostatic hyperplasia. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. Which is just an enlarged prostate. A prostate, exactly. correct? Yeah. And that's not really super serious, I don't believe. I mean, not like getting a cancer, obviously. Um, but when 
I think a lot of men too maybe have heard or or, or uh, understand that this is also kind of a it's it's not super aggressive as a cancer, is it? It seems to be rather slow growing. Is that right? Yeah, the vast majority of the time, um, it's slow growing. In fact, I heard a patient describe it today in a way I had never really heard it described. Since there's there's different degrees of prostate cancer essentially, and he described it as a snail, turtle, and rabbit. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so, well, that makes sense, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, and I like that. You know, the majority of men will have uh, when they're if they're diagnosed with prostate cancer will have like um, the slow growing type of prostate cancer. Um, and a small subset of men will have more aggressive kind of cancer that that spreads and metastasizes more rapidly. And we do see men who show up with uh, metastatic prostate cancer spread to the bones and different parts of the body. And that's what we're trying to prevent because that's more difficult to treat. Yeah. Um, but the vast majority of men have low-risk prostate cancer or intermediate risk, which means low-risk or intermediate risk for spreading to other parts mm-hmm. of the body. Um and so the low risk is generally what we quite quite often just watch, and we call that active surveillance. And so um, that's that's something that's become a little bit more of a newer development in the last 20 years or so. Maybe back into the 90s, very few people would just sit and watch their prostate cancer. They pretty much uh, gave radiation or took out the prostate in any man who had any form of prostate cancer. Yeah. Um, is uh, is that normally the treatments? What are the treatments for cancer for this? Yeah, generally. So, so if you're someone who, who's recently diagnosed with low risk prostate cancer, your your options are generally active surveillance, is where, where we would just watch it with a PSA every six months or so, mm-hmm. and then repeat the biopsy in one to two years um, after the first biopsy. Um, that's how we diagnose prostate cancer with the prostate biopsy. Um, you can also treat it with some newer treatments that are called focal therapies and those are meant to be less invasive and not treat the whole prostate but just the areas where the prostate cancer was found and those are um, are promising they're not kind of the they're not the mainstream treatments quite yet they're not offered everywhere mm-hmm. like here in Rapid City we don't have those available um, just because they aren't they haven't been around long enough to um, have proven the test of time and, and show that they have long-term right. results. Um, but um, other treatments uh, are that are the mainstay are surgery, where we remove the prostate, and radiation. And there's different forms of radiation, um, like pr- uh, brachytherapy, which is implanting radio um, isotopic mm-hmm. seeds into the, prost- into the prostate, and um, then external beam radiation. And, um, so traditional forms of ther- uh, radiation, but um, then intermediate and um, the higher end of intermediate and h- true high-risk prostate cancer is usually best treated with either surgery or radiation or both in some s- instances. So a, a prostate removal is like the last resort. That's what you. I'm assuming you don't want, right? Yeah. I mean, what's what's quality of life? like for having it removed so i mean there's varying degrees of what people experience Mm -hmm. after prostatectomy and it also depends on what their symptoms were before um so the the main side effects of either radiation or prostatectomy generally are um, erectile dysfunction Mm -hmm. if you don't have it before treatment 
there's a very high likelihood that you will have it. If right. you did have it before, but it still worked with medications, then you'll, it'll probably be a little bit worse after those treatments. Um, after surgery, you may experience incontinence, or you almost certainly will experience, experience incontinence right after surgery. That's where you leak on yourself. Right. And that's, that's not pleasant, but <laughs> the, right. va the vast majority of men will regain their continence. Okay. Um, I, I usually see patients at, at the one-month mark after surgery, and uh, I recently had a patient who had, had um, actually two patients that I just saw, they had regained continence, full continence within that first month of surgery. So um, they, they tend to be a little bit more uh, fit and um, right. healthier patients to start with, though. Um, so that's very helpful for that. Um, and then radiation quite often will have side effects of um, irritation of the bladder. Yeah. So they may feel like they need to pee more often or have some more difficulties controlling the, the urge when it comes. So what can you do to make sure you don't outside of genetics? Are there steps you can take? To prevent to, prostate cancer? Yeah. To, to, I mean, or, or at least to, to give yourself the best possible chance of never getting it. Yeah, so um, that's a really good question, and unfortunately, um, we don't have a great answer for that. Really? Yeah. You know, um, we found that genetics and race and age are the three biggest risk factors for prostate cancer. Okay. So, you know, if you're in your, the reason why we screen for prostate cancer, essentially from the 50s to the to about age 70, is because that's when most people will be diagnosed with prostate cancer. Right. African-American males are at highest risk for prostate cancer. And then, um, you know, quite often we'll see men who have a father and brothers who have prostate cancer. So um, that's, you can't really change those factors. Right. Um, there have been some vitamins that have been studied and supplements that maybe have shown some benefit, um, but nothing really that is something that we can hang our hats on. Yeah. And so... Um, Right now, um, it's just the, I would recommend screening so that you can know early on. Well, with the uh, going back a little bit to those PSA tests, was was there a time though when those weren't quite as reliable as they are now? It seems like there was I don't know ten years ago maybe there there seemed to be a lot of false positives that came around with that blood test. Has it always been as accurate as it is now, or was that has it been kind of a learning curve with it too, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, the, the tests certainly, uh, I believe, have gotten more accurate. They, they're more sensitive now, at, at, and we can detect PSA at, at lower levels than we used to be oh, able okay. to. So that's really helpful like, after we've treated someone right. for prostate cancer. Um, but um, the, the levels of, the, of your PSA is pretty reliable. The, the, I guess where we get false positives is what is a normal PSA for somebody? It does change as you age. Um, higher your PSA tends to rise as you age, um, but they when they were doing the studies of of what is normal versus what's not, it, they kind of just arbitrarily chose four. Oh, I see. Four is the cutoff, and so just because you have a PSA of four point five doesn't mean you have prostate cancer. Well, because that'd be like an enlarged prostate too. I mean, could yeah, those play into that as well? Yeah, there's a lot of factors that can cause it to be elevated, such as you are, you already have an enlarged prostate that can cause it to be elevated, or 
urinary tract infections, recent sexual activity. So we usually advise people to hold off from sexual activity for a few days, three okay. or four days before having their blood drawn for a PSA. Um, quite often we see people with enlarged prostates who don't empty their bladders very well, who have um, an, an elevated PSA because of all the pressure built oh, up in their bladder. Sure. Pushing on. I, I saw a patient once who he'd gone through, I think, three prostate biopsies um, for a, an elevated PSA. Um, and I, I, first time I saw him, you know, we, I checked his bladder and he had uh, way too much urine in his bladder. <laughs> Just was holding it too long yeah, and not, not yeah, going. And, and so he, <laughs> and he didn't know it because it had been a gradual process. Yeah. And once we treated his enlarged prostate, and he was able to empty his bladder, his PSA dropped to a very small number. Wow. And so, yeah, there's a lot of factors that can cause your PSA to be elevated. I, just counsel, I always counsel patients that the prostate cancer um, is one of the things. Yeah. So we, we need to rule out. We need to find out what's causing it. Well, this... This was ridiculously interesting. I mean, for, you know, <laughs> from being a guy and from hearing this, you know, as I've gotten older too, um, you know, the steps you have to take. And I, I didn't realize it. I always kind of had the assumption that it's eh, it's one of those throwaway organs, right? That's yeah. like, yeah, it's it's there, but why? Like your appendix. Do we need it? Yes, apparently we do need the <laughs> prostate. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah, do, you, pretty... do, you ever, do you ever see a time down the road where where you think technology will, will improve enough to maybe we can... Um, really get a handle on this to, to you know, to, to, to prevent it maybe down the road, just cancer in general in the prostate? Yes, I think we're, I think we're making great, um, you know, improvements in, in our focal therapies, um, such as um, HIFU and cryotherapy. Um, these are um, treatments that are starting to take off more. And um, even radiation treatment such as CyberKnife, which was, I think used more uh, initially for brain cancers, but it's kind of oh, wow. uh, I've seen some good uh, uh, results in prostate cancer. So I think we're we're getting there. You know, um, it's not taking out the prostate isn't as big a deal as it used to be. Um, quite often, we're sending patients home the same day. Oh wow! Um, now, can part, it, parts of the prostate be removed too? Or, or is it all or nothing? It's kind of an all okay. or nothing thing. Um, to do just treat parts of it, it would have to be one of those focal things. Sure. But, um, yeah, as far as surgery goes, we do it laparoscopically with the Da Vinci robot. Mm -hmm. So uh, men are leaving the hospital with um, four or five incisions. Wow. Uh, small ones. Um, and if they're not going home the same day, most are going home, going home the next day. Okay. And... Um, we are at Monument. We're getting the single port robot, which instead of which would mean instead of having four or five incisions in their abdomen, they have uh, one um, about two inch incision, and we're able to do everything through that one port. What I'm hearing specifically for robotics coming out of Monument is so exciting and encouraging. You know what you guys are able to do now mm -hmm. to get people in in one day in some instances on these surgeries that used to be, you know, you're in the hospital a couple nights, if not a week yeah. <laughs> sometimes, right? Yeah. So that has to be exciting uh -huh. for you guys too. Yeah. And we have multiple, uh, multiple members of our urology group who perform that surgery. And, um, Dr. Santa Cruz, I think he, he just surpassed, uh, 
over 1500 robotic wow. cases that's amazing since he's been our monument so <laughs> yeah they're doing we're doing great things i think uh well this was a lot of fun to talk to you dr hobson uh and i think uh you know it's just reassuring because this probably is one of the you know uh scarier cancers that men think about i'm sure um and it's just you know reassuring to know that uh it's 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 super treatable if it's caught in time generally yeah, lots of options for yeah a lot of options that's the key i think right there uh dr nicholas hobson uh urologic surgeon monument health thank you very much for coming in and talking about this yes, i appreciate it you bet Doc Talk with Monument Health is recorded live at Homeslice Studios, hosted by Mark Houston, edited by Russ Hatton, engineered by Chris Jaquist, and produced by Kelsey Kinney and Rob Henry.